On this AirCheck episode, we flip over to the AM dial and hear some intriguing stories from the emperor of Top 40 AM radio in 1960s Baltimore, Paul Rothfuss. Paul tells us about promotions involving live zoo animals, how he got to Baltimore from his home of Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and how and why he passed up meeting the Beatles. Here we go. Welcome to AirCheck Season 3, a podcast about radio's personality. From radio personalities, managers, consultants, owners, and your most humble hosts, from Philadelphia, Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly. I'm Rich DeSisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. On this AirCheck session, we're proud to have with us a legend from 1960s Top 40 AM radio in Baltimore, who besides having more than one radio alias, he's also had more than one radio role, DJ. WCBM's popular citizen of the day today, Norman W. Lowenstein, recently elected the board of directors of Germania Federal Savings and Loan Association. It's 6.30 on WCBM in Baltimore. Salesperson. After 16 years, I'm just going to kind of vanish off the radio and stay in radio. That's going to be a little difficult, but I'm going to be in sales here at WYRE. Station owner. And Kirby says to me, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He says, where's the guy that always wanted to own a radio station? I said, well, you're talking to him. He said, oh, yeah? And what are you doing about that? Same thing you did yesterday. I said, well, I guess you're right. He said, you need to come down. I need to talk to you. He's written two incredible books available on Amazon, one about the ownership days, Wiggles, Winks, and Wizards, and the other about his days behind the mic, both in and out of the studio, entitled Alias Emperor Rogers. Please welcome to Aircheck, Paul Rothfuss, Alias Emperor Rogers. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> so glad to have you here today, Mr. Rothfuss. And I, and I say that respectfully because you are, uh, you've got some royalty behind you. I mean, you are a, a jock that comes uh, from 60s radio, but actually uh, prior to the 60s. And uh, along with that came a couple of aliases that uh, you accumulated along your radio career. We're going to start with your most recent uh, radio alias, Emperor Rogers, you know, which is also the name of one of your two books. Uh, um, the other one, Wiggles, Winks, and Wizards, which you know, we're going to refer to from time to time. But uh, as you know, radio personalities uh, sometimes come up with nicknames and gimmicks. Rich, he was Tonto. I was Mad Dog, both described in season one, episode one of Air Check. But for you, quote unquote, Emperor Rogers. <laughs> it was, wasn't just a name. It was a discipleship. I mean, there was a costume, photo shoots, billboards, Bus backs. I mean, this is the 1960s. Uh, Rogers Royal Commando membership cards. I mean, a huge undertaking. And you can still get those. I mean, you you had to be invested in this thing for it to work. I mean, walk us through what that conference room planning or meeting was like. I mean, how did Emperor Rogers come about? I had just started doing mornings at WCAO in in December of 1963. And so in the early part of 64, I'm walking through the promotion director's office after I got off the air. And her name was Wilma Clark. And she was a piece of work. And Wilma said to me, hey, you're the emperor. And I said, what? Yeah, you're the emperor, Emperor Rogers. I said, what in the world are you talking about? And then she explained to me that Bob Hudson, that wonderful, crazy radio personality from, I think, KRLA in Los Angeles, had declared himself the emperor one day. And they embarked on this huge promotion and he became Emperor Hudson. And they started planning these events and stuff all over Los Angeles and everybody went crazy. And Bob Hudson's a bright guy. So he syndicated this and WDAO bought it. So here comes Lock, Stock and Barrel. And I walk in the office and you're the emperor because I was doing mornings. Had I been doing some other 
uh, slot in that station, I wouldn't have been the guy, but that's what they did. I, I will just sum one little bit of this up by saying that's that was a, for a full year, maybe 15 months that we did that thing. We had about 70,000 of those cards out in people's hands all over the all over the Baltimore <laughs> Metro. And we did stuff that you couldn't get permission to do today. If you ask permission, you would be denied. We're going to we, touch on We're going to touch on a couple of those things. Yeah, we just did way. it. <laughs> and so I got this unit, this outfit, you know, with the uh, look like look like Caesar crazy uh, sandals that with leather uh, strips that rip walked up my leg. <laughs> and then they were going to put this crown on me. Very uh, un- unprepossessing sort of circular thing that looked like it was a bunch of vines twined together. And so I got them to hang rubber grapes on the sides of them. So we walked around like that. Hey, I was just a fresh faced Pennsylvania boy trying to make a living. <laughs> That's all it was. Well, tell me, tell me about your stature in the '60s as the emperor. I mean, you're not some little four foot six inch guy. You were a, a big man. You're you're a big dude. I was six feet tall, yeah, and probably weighed about one eighty five. Wish I did today, but <laughs> that's a different story for a different day. But yeah, and and we uh, we we assembled this this uh, harem of scantily clad ladies, most of whom were employees at the radio station. And we embarked on all kinds of crazy stuff, walking through the town. And I guess I've told you about the lion that we did one day, noon, noon on a Wednesday or Thursday, downtown Baltimore, amidst all the department stores, social cones and the heck company. And uh, here comes this entourage. And uh, as a part of this, we were friends with Dr. Watson, who was the director of the Baltimore Zoo. So Wilma Clark calls up Dr. Watson and said, can we have a lion? And he said, for what? And she explained that we needed to have a lion as a part of this entourage. We got this probably pretty old American mountain lion, a puma, if you will. And uh, I don't know how many teeth he had. I didn't bother to examine them. <laughs> we had him on a gold chain and we're walking down the streets of Baltimore in the, and amongst the banks and everybody's leaving their offices for lunch. And here comes this group of <laughs> know, five to seven people with me behind with this staff in my hand and making a complete fool out of myself and frankly loving every minute of it and you know it was it was just fun we just did stuff then i was the grand marshal of the uh ringling brothers barnum and bailey parade how did that that happen oh well they asked (laughs) (laughs) we need the emperor march in in baltimore can be very lovely 60 and sunny and most off times it was that this day was 43 windy kind of spitty rain off of you know misty uh, every so often and I get up on an elephant with this outfit on the only thing I had underneath was skivvies and we start down Maryland Avenue now you go to Maryland Avenue is probably I don't know maybe it's a hundred foot drop from the top of the hill down to where the Civic Center is next to the harbor and of course the buildings on each side acted like a wind tunnel and up the tunnel came this <laughs> 28 degree breeze uh, (laughs) frozen and of course when the parade was going down maryland avenue there were always lots of people along the streets not this day people in baltimore are smart they don't go outside when it's 42 and cloudy and raining but (laughs) some people in the second floors of these office buildings you know and so here i come riding this damn elephant (laughs) down Baltimore, Maryland Avenue. We got to the Civic Center and went in the back. And it was the first time I'd been warm in about two hours. And my bride, (laughs) my beautiful bride, Barbie, met me there. And uh, we went home. And I tried to take a shower for, I don't know, maybe three or four consecutive days. But it takes a long time to get the elephant smell off. (laughs) 
So you were about you you were about getting attention. I mean, that's that's what you wanted you got to do. To get noticed. You got to get noticed, and that's the, that's the case with everything and anything you do today. I don't care. That's why you advertise. Why do people advertise? You got to get noticed. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are some things you could do to get noticed that are illegal, but you'd get noticed. You can't do them. <laughs> So you have to find legal things. And this was, well, we didn't know if it was legal or not. We just did it. I mean, you caught the attention of the Baltimore Orioles. They said, we need the emperor to come and toss out the first pitch. And you come out there in all of your uh, costume and gear. Regalia. (laughs) I love baseball. And I played baseball. I was a pitcher at the the end of my quote unquote career when I was 17 or 18. I was a relief pitcher. Okay. So I got on the mound at Memorial Stadium. And I don't know, it was a weekday. I don't know, maybe... 12 or 14,000 people in the stands. And these kids that were uh, band members, one of whom is my partner in the book, Don Lenhoff, he and another guy got trumpets, got those Herald trumpets, the long ones. I didn't know this was going to happen. I walk in the dugout to go out on the field, and there's Lenhoff with these horns. So I walk out on the field, and they sneak out and start blowing these horns. <laughs> I, I walk out on the mound, and I've got these awful Caligay, they're called, those heavy slipper looking things and i go into a windup and catch my toe on the rubber and damn near went down uh. i said well any chance i ever had in this tryout has been blown and the orioles will never sign me <laughs> <laughs> well uh you you and i have a few things in common paul uh with our respective early days in radio we both love listening to baseball on the radio you obviously love playing it as well uh we both got our first job in radio uh at 19 years old in fact baseball on the radio just scratched the surface i would listen to yankees games on my transistor in bed at night and then wake up with the earpiece still in my ear uh to the morning show on 770 wabc back in 1978 1977 who and what were you listening to as a child what what was going on with your your transistor radio your your uh dxing as you call it well as a kid radio was then what podcasting is today it was stories on the radio we had programs and when it transitioned into music because tv stole all the programs that's a long story it's in the book in any case my mother gave me a filco transistor radio because she got a new one for her little spot in the kitchen where she used to listen to soap operas so this had a piece of pie shaped thing broken out of the top of it and i set it on the table next to my bed and it had tubes of course and at night when the radio was on you could see the glow of the tubes against the wall and of course there were two dials there was on off volume and then there was tune and it was am only and so i started scrubbing around on the band and learned fairly early on i was probably 13 that you could pick up long distance radio stations one night i hit kmox in st louis this is kmox radio the voice of st louis and this is the st louis area and the show me state of missouri first thing saturday morning here comes fifty thousand clear channel red hot watts of the wide horizon late night signal of radio this is in williamsport pennsylvania and i'm 13 and i think st louis Holy hell, that's halfway across the country. And it's Harry Carey doing a Cardinals Phillies game. There's a line drive going deep in the right field, way back there, it's up against the wall. Here's Kazak on his way to third base. Here's Porter on his way to second. Here's Kazak being held up to third now. Here's the throw cut off by Waitress. Good coaching, Harry. I, he'd have been thrown out of the plate. And as it just turned out, now we got a man on third base and one out and a five ball to tie this up. Every percentage is now favor to hold him. I was mighty afraid that he was going to send him in. Now it's runners on second and third, and manager Eddie Sire, the Phillies, comes out to talk. And Johnny Lindell is going to be the hitter. He fanned his last time up. And once again, the Cardinals are knocking at the door. 
by the way, I tried to be a Phillies fan, but they stunk so bad I couldn't bring it up. <laughs> so at that time. They had two great pitchers and, no, uh, and Richie Ashburn and nobody else. Anyway, the next morning I said to my dad, Dad, I was listening to a station in St. Louis last night. He said, St. Louis, huh? Well, we'll have to look into that. But that started me. It's called DXing. I didn't know that at the time, but DX is the uh, uh, Morse code word for distance. And DXing is you're going across the AM band, finding these 50 kilowatt clear channel stations that are able to, if you're able to get, if the sky wave is right. Man, I'm finding them from all over the place. I'm finding them from Toronto, Chicago, uh, New Orleans, Buffalo. I found WKBW and they were playing rock and roll. That was cool. At one point, I found WLAC in Nashville, Tennessee, and the disc jockey was John R. John R. WLAC, Nashville, Tennessee. John R. WLAC, Soul Center, the broadcasting service of Life and Casualty Insurance Company, Home Office, Nashville, Tennessee. 50,000 watts of joy on the air everywhere, 24 hours per day. Brought to you tonight by Randy's Record Mark. Tonight, we have a five-record Randy's special. The one and only Ernie's Record Mart, Nashville, Tennessee. Man, they got them. Records galore at that store. Specialize in sending them out, too, by mail COD. Unconditionally guaranteed safe delivery. You get Fats Domino, and he'd play eight bars of that. And then you get the Spaniels, and he'd play. And I fell in love with rhythm and blues music listening to that. That kind of piqued my interest. I didn't say I want to be on the radio. I never, ever remember ever saying that. But uh, later on, I ended up at Gettysburg College as a freshman, dialing across the band, and I found WCAO. This was 1957, the fall of 1957. And they were one of the leading top 40 stations at the time. I didn't know that. Plow Incorporated, WCAO. You're in tune with Radio Baltimore, WCAO, AM and FM, the Plow Incorporated station, 60 on your radio. Radio, where you're never more than five minutes for music. WCAO time, 11.56, time for the news. So I'm listening to this, and it was the first time I'd ever heard a really good Top 40 station in the daytime. Alan Drake was on, the Draker. Hello, good people, ease. this is the Draker on 60 on your radio. He was unbelievable. And I'm listening to Les Alexander and some of these guys. That kind of piqued my interest again, but I love the music. That's what I liked the most. They were playing all the hits of the 50s, uh, late 50s and early 60s. So I get back home in 1958, and one of my buddies says to me, there's a new station on, on the radio in Williamsport, Pennsylvania, and they're playing our music. And I said, ah, because we had NBC, CBS, and Mutual, and it was boring, bad radio for me. I'm, I'm 17. So I turn the radio on, and out of the speaker comes my high school friend, Kirby Confer. I said, my God, Kirby's on the radio. And I knew where the station was. So I go over there. Kirby's in there. It's about quarter to six in the afternoon. He was the only one there. And he's covered up with records. And he's in this tiny little studio. I said, this looks like fun. He said, it is. And we need an announcer. Why don't you come over tomorrow and audition? I thought, okay. So the next day I go over and it's 10 o'clock in the morning. And I go upstairs to see Mr. Castleberry and Dave Castleberry, who put the station on the air. And, and I told him I wanted to audition. Here, take this. He handed me the news paper. And when I point to you, there's a microphone there. Just start reading. I said, what do you want me to read? He said, it doesn't matter. So I sat down and started reading something. And after about 30 seconds, I hear bing, bing, bing. And I look up and he's tapping on the big double window in his studio. He was where he was recording me and he's wiggling me over with his index finger. And I said, oh, this is good. This is probably a disaster. And I walked out in the hallway and he said, you're hired. And I said, I am? He said, yeah. I said, well, that's great, Mr. Castleberry. When do you want me to start? And he looked at his watch and he said, six o'clock. I'll see you here at quarter of. So I went to the station 
And he handed me a little card to read a station break. And at six o'clock, I said, you're listening to WMPT, South Williamsport, Pennsylvania. It's six o'clock and time for Howard Cosell and speaking of sports. I don't, I'm sure I didn't sound like that, but because that's before I, I didn't know anything. But thank God for Dave Castleberry, he, because, you know, it was 85 cents an hour. That was the minimum wage in those days. And he gave me a shot. I didn't know anything. He gave me a chance. And I owe him forever for that. The air check session that doesn't make you squirm in your seat. Or maybe it does. More to come. Your radio experiences are welcome here. Ready to share? Email aircheckme at gmail.com. To join Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly on AirCheck, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. We found a bunch of bits and commercials from back in the day that we want to play for you to get your reaction. Paul, you want to start off with one? Let's start with Ajax Liquor Store. Ajax Liquor Store. As a, as oh, a liquor store. oh, my God. Right <laughs> you, you guys deliver? We deliver. You got any tequila? We have tequila. Tequila. Yeah. You got any quartz? Quartz. We have quartz. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want any quartz. All right. How much do you want? I want fifths. You want fifths. All right. Four fifths. Four fifths. Well, that was, that was our hit record. That was Bob Hudson and Ron Landry. Hudson and Landry. Two disc jockeys from Los Angeles did the, made a record. It was an album. They did the Ajax Pet Store, and I think it was on Decca. It's a scream. <laughs> I don't know who played which role, but it's just so nuts. You couldn't do this today. Foster Brooks could not have a career today. Bill Dana. You remember Bill Dana? My name, Jose Jimenez. He could not have a career today. That would be culturally unacceptable. You could not go on the air and play a drunk today because it makes fun of being drunk, which isn't really a good idea. And we understand that. We played that record. I played that on my show on WCBM, Ajax Liquor Store, because the program director gave us some latitude. Uh, if you feel like something kind of fits, maybe something that's going on, just throw it in there, but don't do it too often. At a young age, you became a husband and a father, not an easily juggling act as a guy in radio. And throughout your career, you were, you were witness to a few major events in history. And I would argue part of that history to so many of your listeners, as you just mentioned, that engagement factor, speaking one-on-one to your listener, they were listening to you when these things happen and you were telling them this, the play-by-play, if you will, for lack of a better term, as, as to what was going on in history. And if you if you would humor Paul and I throughout this episode, we want to occasionally mention one or, or, or two of them uh, to you and, and for you to kind of tell us what comes to mind. One of which is Tuesday, February 3rd, 1959, about six months before your 19th birthday, you were on the air hosting a record show on WMPT in Williamsport, PA. I think they called it a platter party. We'll get into that a little later. This was a four-hour radio show, five days a week that you hosted. And all of a sudden, there was a news bulletin. Walk us through that moment. What happened? It came to be known as the day the music died. An airplane went down out in Minnesota, I think it was. Wisconsin, I don't remember for sure. Buddy Holly was on board. The Big Bopper, Richie Valens. Dion was supposed to be on it too, but he got went decided to go a different way and those guys were all killed we interrupt this program for a special news bulletin three young singers who soared to the heights of show business on the current rock and roll craze were killed today in the crash of a light plane in an iowa snow flurry the singers were identified as richie valens 17 buddy holly 22 and jp richardson known professionally as the big bopper for those people that were listening to that radio show in that moment, it was a shock. Buddy Holly was huge. Richie Valens was huge. J.P. Richardson, a Dallas disc jockey who was the big bopper, had just had a Chantilly Lace. These guys were huge. Nothing like that had ever happened. I mean, you, if it did, we didn't know about it. When some a group of stars like that go down in a light plane, it was a shock. 
And uh, it was hard to read that story. And then what you wanted to do was get the Buddy Holly album out and play all those cuts. But that wouldn't have been what we would have done in those days. Now, when Elvis died, that was different in, in the in the 19 uh, in the 1970s. But uh, we wouldn't have done that. But we would play play a Buddy Holly record from time to time. Anyway, Paul and I uh, in our early radio careers remember the AP wire. And of course, today it's all it's the Internet. That's where you get your breaking news. But back then, how did you get the news? Walk us through that process. You're doing the radio show. The alert happens. What 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 does that mean? And how does how is that happening behind the scenes? Well, we had a UPI machine out in the out in the the front office. And whenever they moved a bulletin, it would ring. Bing, 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 bing. And you go, oh, there's a news bulletin. And you went out and it would be something from Washington. Not that day. Not that day. I ripped it off the wire and opened the microphone and said something stupid. I mean, I was 19 years old or 18. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't say anything like, folks, you're not going to believe this. But I probably read it like a newsman would have, I suppose, trying to imitate whatever a newsman would have sounded like as, as a kid. But uh, yeah, and it, it was hard to do because I love the music. Interestingly enough, the last record that Buddy Holly ever released was one called One Side Was Raining in my heart and the flip side was it doesn't matter anymore that was his last record release wow and there's more irony to uh the music side of this your first record you ever played on the radio uh on that <laughs> platter party was a dion and the belmont song wasn't it dion and the belmonts uh, uh i was a bass singer in a doo-wop group when i was in high school the five sharps it was called uh I wonder why. And it opened with a bass run. I thought that was cool. And it was. So that was the first record I ever played. I Wonder Why by Dion and the Belmonts. Then I spent the next 17 years wondering why. (laughs) What the hell are they doing? They were paying me money to play records and say funny stuff. My dad, who was a deeply well-educated man, 47 when I was born, and I'm his first child. He was a doctor, a wonderful man. When I told him I was going to leave Williamsport to take a job in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, he said to me, standing in the living room, I, I can see it like it was yesterday. I said, Dad, I'm leaving Williamsport. This was January of 1960. Uh, he said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Harrisburg. I have a full-time job at a radio station down there. He said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a disc jockey. You're going to be a what? I said, well, I'm going to be on the radio and, you know, playing records and stuff. And he paused and he said, well, I guess that's all right. He was not about to try to determine. By the way, by then I was married and I had, we had a beautiful little daughter who today is 61 years old and she's still beautiful. You know, I was on my own. And dad just got each step back and got out of the way. Great guy. He was, I owe him a great deal. Great mentor. And by the way, this lovely girl that married me, I've said this to her so many times and to others as well. She hitched her wagon to an itinerant disc jockey and stayed around for 62 years. (laughs) (laughs) You kept playing her favorite song, Paul. That's why. This is an Air Check Rewind. Season one, Neil Mursky. I get a call from the Warner Brothers guy, the promo guy, that, hey, Van Halen wants to come. They're in town. The show is on a Saturday night. They wanted to come by the radio station to, you know, not that the show wasn't already sold out. They just wanted to have some fun on the radio. So, of course, biggest band on the planet at that point. I said, sure. The band showed up. They were obnoxious. They were drunk. They were stoned. They just came in. It wasn't even an interview. I would ask questions they would ignore me. I'm sure it was very entertaining to the listeners, but boy, going through it was not pleasant. Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from Radio Personalities. Seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also 
also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play AirCheck Podcast or OK, Google, play AirCheck Podcast. Well, we've been talking about Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, your beginnings there at WMPT. You get from there to Baltimore, which is a major radio market, top 20 major radio market. Williamsport in this day and age, I believe, is in the 200s, 250s. Something. How do you make that hop? Well, by the time the uh, the early part of the 1960s came along, about 1950, late 59 to 1960, I started saying, if I'm not in a major market by the time I'm 25, I'm getting out of radio. And I said that to Kirby one day, and he said, why? I said, I can't raise a family making minimum wage, making 65 a week. That's just not going to work. Well, I got a job in Harrisburg working nights at WHGB. Uh, I would sign the station off at one, one o'clock in the morning and get home and, you know, get a drink of Coke or something like that and try to get to bed at two in the morning. Well, one Monday morning, Barbie got me out of bed at nine o'clock because I was still asleep. And she said, somebody's on the phone. A guy named Saunders. Al Saunders. I said, oh, my God. Well, in Williamsport, when the promotion men came to town and asked me about what I wanted to do, I told them I wanted to be in a major market. And they said, well, you better get to WSBA. That's the jumping off place. That's a great radio station in York, Pennsylvania. Big signal covers York, Lancaster, and Harrisburg. Well, now I find myself in Harrisburg. I can hear WSBA. Stay tuned to the good guys. Good afternoon to you. This is Dangerous Dan Donovan at eight and a half minutes after two. WSBA, the station of the year, salutes the city of the week. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the hell am I ever going to get there? So I go to the phone. Is this Paul Rothfuss from WHGB? And I'm half awake. Yes, yes, it is. This is Al Saunders at WSBA. We were in Harrisburg on Friday night to do that big record hop at the Progress Fire Hall. And I heard you on the air. You have talent. No one had ever said anything like that to me. And I'd like you to come to, to come down and talk about coming to work for me. Would you like to do that? I said, I'd love to. Wow. So I go to meet Al Saunders. I go in and sit down in his office and he offers me a job and he says, it's 85 a week. I, I'd like you to start as soon as you can. I said, well, I'm, thank you, sir. I'd love to do that. Mr. Saunders. He said, call me Al. I thought that'd be a great song title. we sat down there and he said now there's something you're going to have to do you're going to have to change your name now remember i'm 19 years old and i and i don't know anything and i've got this strange look on my he said no 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 i don't mean legally but for being on the air listen Paul Rothfuss isn't going to get it. Rothfuss sounds like you've been chewing on a half-eaten apple core and some mashed-up sausage. (laughs) No offense. And he said, no. And he said, listen, my name is Alvin L. Steinwedel, Al Saunders. (laughs) Do you get it? I said, yes, sir, I get it. He said, good. He said, Paul is good. Uh, You should pick a name that begins with an R. I don't know. Robbins, Roberts, Rogers. See, if you do that, you won't have to change any of your monogram shirts. <laughs> remember, I'm an innocent. And, and Saunders was a great kidder, by the way. I look at him and I want to say, monogram shirts? Hell, I don't have any shirts. So anyway, so it became Paul Roberts. Now I'm at WSBA. And then I end up at Warm up in Scranton, the mighty 590. Remember, now I've talked this over again. I got to be in a market, major market by the time I'm 25, by the time I'm 25. I never sent any tapes out. 
I never called any program directors, but one day I screwed up my courage and I took an air check and stuck it in the mail with a little letter and I sent it to Larry Monroe, who was the program director at WCAO in Baltimore. Why Baltimore? Well, dad took me to Baltimore a lot of times when I was a kid. I thought I knew something about it and I had heard WCAO when I was in college. From around the world and across the nation, the news pours in straight to the station. Many times throughout the day, we send it to you right away. Here's all the news and weather on time from the mid-Atlantic states across the nation and around the world, brought to you by Radio Baltimore, WCAO. The president. So I sent the tape. Three, four weeks go by. Silence. And I'm getting a little angry. I'm thinking to myself, well, you look, a, a card would be nice. Kid, you stink. Don't ever come here. <laughs> that would have been okay. And worst possible timing, quarter of five on a Friday, I screwed up my courage and I called the radio station. Mulberry 50600. That was the phone number. WCAO, Larry Monroe. I thought, my God, he's answering the phone. Found out he was doing afternoon drive. And if a phone, you know, they had those banks of phones with the lights that flashed when one of the lines was coming in. And he couldn't let himself let a phone call go by. Might have been a listener. Mr. Mr. Monroe, this is Paul Roberts of WARM. Yes, I've heard you on the air. We were in, uh, we were up in that area looking to buy a radio station. You're, you're good. I said, well, thank you. I sent you a tape. Yes, I know, but I haven't had a chance to listen to it. And besides, we don't have any openings. I said, well, Mr. Monroe, I didn't say, I didn't ask you if you had any openings. I asked you if you would let me come in for an interview because, you know, people leave and that kind of stuff. Well, I guess that would be all right. When are you going to be in Baltimore? I said, tomorrow. That was a lie. He said, fine, be in my office at 10 o'clock the next morning. Went down to WCAO in, into the station, take Gwenda Larry's office. And I'll never forget this. He pulled open the drawer of one of these file cabinets and it was filled with these tapes and every tape looked the same. Clear plastic reel, brown tape. And I thought, and they all sound the same. Oh, he said, here's your tape. He pulls it out and puts it on a home wall and sack tape recorder. And we listened to it. He said, you're good, but I don't have any openings. I said, well, that's fine, but I'm really glad I came down. I thank you for your time. And uh, I hope to someday I can come to work for you. Three weeks into March, I'm walking out of the house to go to the, go to the station. The phone rings. Hey, Paul, it's Larry Monroe. I need you to come to work for me. I damn near fainted. I ended up going to work in Baltimore. Had I not gone down there for that interview and saved him the time of not having to interview 50 guys because he had tapes from everybody, I don't know. I mean, maybe some of them were, but probably some of them were a hell of a lot better than me. Maybe they weren't. I don't know. We'll never know. So I ended up in Baltimore and I was, uh, I was 23 in September of that year. This would have been in May. So I was 22. And by the end of that year, I was doing mornings. I went there to do four to midnight and Larry Monroe was a, was a prince. He was a prince. Oh, and that was another thing. He said, you can't be Paul Roberts. I said, what? why? He said, well, the guy that you're replacing in the same hours on the station was named Rob Roberts. And he got a little sideways with us and did some things in the town that I don't know what they were, by the way. I don't have any idea. No care. But and that just wouldn't be good. You need to change it. I said, how's Paul Rogers sound? He said, it's OK with me. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Paul Rogers. See you again tomorrow. Till then, this is the ride reminding you to keep the garbage can covered, the dog tied tightly, and the baby fed. Like Lady Good Buddy, I do believe what I mean to say is. The Paul Rogers show. That was 1963. Well, it's clear uh, 
that the passion of radio still lives with inside you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here with us today talking about it and um, the different things that happened in AM Top 40 radio in the 60s. Those were some of the things that Rich and I really enjoyed hearing about in in your uh, books, especially in Alias Emperor Rogers that we've been referring to. And so we want to talk about some of those things that happened in those days. So we may hop back and forth between a couple of different radio stations that you worked for. Um, But let's talk about the football broadcast that went bad, the Bald Eagle Nittany High School Panthers at Ben Stadium. (laughs) I did some football play-by-play for a couple seasons, and people told me I was pretty good. It was was a lot of fun. Uh, High school. Now, now remember, Dave Castleberry at that first radio station, poor Dave, he didn't have 15 cents. He had taken everything he had to get this radio station on the air. We're trying to get sponsors, and we're playing rock and roll music, and no business people in Williamsport like that, and, you know, That'll, all that stuff. He comes to me and he says, oh, by the way, we were then the, uh, we, we did the games for South Williamsport on Friday nights because they played at night. And Montoursville High School played on Saturday afternoons when they were home. I mean, home games. The away game, obviously, you played when, when the away team decided. He comes to me one day and he says, South Williamsport and Bald Eagle Nittany are both undefeated. And the game Saturday is up at Bald Eagle Nittany, which is over on the other side of Lock Haven, about 30 miles from Williamsport. And we're going to do the broadcast. I said, oh, that's great. Well, I have directions how to get there. No, 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 no. You're not going there. We're going to do it from the front room of the radio station. I said, well, uh, how are we going to do that? Now, Dave couldn't afford telephone lines or anything like that. He said, well, we can hear WBPZ in Lock Haven. We can hear it. We can pick it up on the radio. You're going to listen to the play-by-play of that radio station, and you're going to recreate the play-by-play as it's being delivered by the guy at WBPZ doing the play-by-play. Oh, my God. <laughs> Again, hey, I was 18, and this was under the umbrella of what the hell did I know? <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know how stupid of an idea that was, and moreover, I didn't know how stupid I was to try to attempt it. So Saturday comes, I go out and sit in the front room of that radio station <laughs> with a pair, of, a pair of headsets on, which are plugged into an AM radio someplace. And WBPZ was a 250 watt radio station somewhere under in the 1200s on the dial. <laughs> Down and. 19 games of 17. And that's the way the thing went. <laughs> and so I said to Dave, well, what about crowd noise? He said, don't worry about it. We used to have these giant 16-inch discs. Well, he had a 16-inch disc of crowd noise. He said, I'll just put this on the turntable and it'll be rolling behind you. I thought, well, that'll be ridiculous, but okay. <laughs> so I got this noise behind me. And of course, I can hear it in the headsets. It didn't take me long to realize that what the crowd noise was a baseball crowd. Oh, no. As God is my witness, the crowd noise was a baseball crowd. So you have remember when you used to pop cups, take a cup and turn it upside down and step on it and make a popping noise? Every once in a while, or in the, the sound of a baseball being hit, and then the crowd would settle down. Had nothing whatsoever to do so this is rolling behind me, and I can hardly hear. I can hardly understand what's going on. Except I knew that it would be a probably a pretty good football game, so I tried to make it exciting. Now, here's the best news. Nobody ever recorded it. <laughs> because if I ever heard that today, I would I would be red-faced. But we did it, and he got sponsors, too. We had sponsors. People paid for commercials, probably six bucks a piece. I don't know. But <laughs> Wow. Oh, it was kind of bizarre. Those were the days. <laughs> but we did it. 
<laughs> this episode of Air Check continues right after this shameless begging for your radio stories. You got one? More than one? Take in what we can get. Email aircheckme at gmail.com to join Rich DeSisto and Paul Kelly on Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. You know, Harry, there's been a lot of talk about people are putting all kinds of things in their honey. They're putting fruits and vegetables and nuts in their honey. I, I, I wonder if we're getting a little carried away with that. Seymour, it's a free country, and people can put whatever they want in their honey. Well, that was a syndicated thing. Some guy from Dayton, Ohio, created that. Uh, Big Red and Thor, the Honey Brothers. The The deal was you, that you bought this syndicated program, which we used it on, Kirby and I used it on, I don't know, four or five radio stations. And you would locate this winery in some small town in your coverage area and tell people that the winery was there. Well, next time thing you know, people are driving out to try to find the Heine winery. Whenever, whenever things are rough, what you need to do is grab some Heine. <laughs> And the listeners just went crazy. Another type of promotion radio was famous for was a scavenger hunt. Not so much anymore due to the listeners' potential risk of injury involved by participating. But 1960s Top 40 radio, it was a different time. Like you said, those were the days. But you were involved in a type of scavenger hunt with water cans that went kind of wrong. Tell that story. WSBA uh, claimed ownership of York. Lancaster and Harrisburg. This is the Nifty 910 WSBA, York, Lancaster, Harrisburg's number one station for music, or however they did the liners. They got the idea to get these one-gallon cans and paint them white and put the call letters on the side of them and hide them somewhere, one in York, one in Lancaster, and one in Harrisburg. Now, I was still living in Harrisburg. This was in the summer of 1960. I didn't move down to York until the fall of that year. So Al says to me, I want you to find a place. I'll, t- I'll tell you where it is. You, you, you go up to that little, there's a little creek on the other side of the uh, farm show building. And you just take this can and you go up, go to the bridge where the cars go up, over the road. And you just tuck this under that little spot under that bridge. Do it in the middle of the night. Okay. So I took the can up and put it there. And of course, you gave clues. Well, they got the York water can in a matter of a couple of days and the Lancaster one in a couple of days later, but could not find the Harrisburg. Nobody could. We were we were almost saying, hey, it's in that bridge, that little creek bridge. It's just north of the almost something had to go wrong. So I go up there one afternoon and I, I don't know what anybody thought walking around in that little stream and just traffic going all over the place. And I saw a high water mark. Because there had been some heavy rains. We had these gully washers in the summer, you know, and the can had apparently gotten washed away. So I gave the report back to the radio station and they gave me a second water can. About two o'clock in the morning, I put it in and the next morning, the guy finds it. And the prize was $100. And in 1960, well, my pay with that time was 85 a week. So you, you figure it out. That's another story of Al Saunders. My first paycheck was for 90. I was there for one week and I got a paycheck. And I went to him and I said, Al, there's been a mistake in my pay. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, you told me it was $85 a week, but they paid me 90. Without a moment's hesitation, he said to me, oh, didn't I tell you? I said, tell me what? He said, well, after you left uh, and when I called up to the up to the uh, pottery to get you on the payroll, I didn't think 85 was enough. So I told him it was 90. Is that okay? Now, I'm telling you something. It was a mistake. (laughs) But Saunders knew that for five bucks a week, he would own my little fanny. (laughs) And he did. He was a dear man and a wonderful man. 
I have very few regrets in this life, but one of them is I did not stay in touch with him and ever tell him personally how much I loved him. Uh, I, I, I think he knew. And I know he was proud of me and some of the other guys that we that had worked with us. Dan Donovan was one of them. There were a lot of guys that went through WSBA and the promotion men were, were right. If you could make it to Susquehanna and were good, you could make it to the majors. Now, Susquehanna, Susquehanna was the name of the radio group that owned WSBA as well as Warren. Magnificent company. Great to work for. Those that are fans of the uh, TV show WKRP in Cincinnati are very familiar with the name Art Carlson. But you actually worked with the real Carlson. That's where they got the name for the GM. Gordon Jump, I think, played that role. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Venus, could I say something? Yes, Mr. Carlson, where are you? I'm afraid I've overheard your conversation. I did not mean to, mind you. Of course not. Sounds to me like you're worrying too much about color and forgetting the most important thing. Which is? That you're a, a fine person with an interesting job, right, John? It's not that interesting, I see. What do you learn? Thanks, Mr. Carlson. Well, I hope I could have been of some help. Yes. Excuse me, Mr. Carlson. Could I ask just what you were doing in the record library? Hunting for old guy Lombardo records and smoking dope. Oh. <laughs> That was a great show. They only got one thing wrong, by the way. WKRP, this TV show, they only got one thing wrong. They did in a half an hour what it really took about a week to happen at most radios. (laughs) They hit the nail on the head with that. Characters top to bottom. And every station I ever worked for always had a va-va-voomster as the the receptionist. Yeah, the receptionist (laughs) knew everything, too. She she knew everything that was going on. Or everybody. I never knew knew why. (laughs) They did. So what was the real Carlson like? Well, I'll give you two stories. First, first, I'm stepping out of the studio one afternoon about quarter of six because I was doing afternoon drive by then. And he comes click. He had always had taps on the heels of his shoes. He comes tapping down the hall to make a left to walk down the other hall and go out the front door. And we meet at the corner where the water fountain was. And he never stopped walking. He said, how are you doing, Paul? I said, I'm fine, Mr. Carlson. And he kept walking. I said, but I have to tell you something. If I have to play this Brenda Lee record one more time, I think I'm going to faint. <laughs> Kept on walking, and he turned to point his left shoulder at me, raised his left hand, and put out his index finger as he's going out the door, and he said, relax. Mom's just beginning to hum it. And that's that's the main theory of Top 40 Radio. Find the hits that they really want to hear and play the hell out of them until they don't want to hear them anymore, and they'll let you know. And that was it. Another time I'm on the air at Warm, and uh, I was doing noon to four by then. I did noon to four, and Kirby did four to seven. We were working together. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, uh, (laughs) the GM came in and said, sound good today. Carlson's on his way. I said, Don, I sound good every day, and I don't care who's on their way. (laughs) He walked out. About half an hour later, Mr. Carlson stuck his head in the door, and he said, "Uh, how are you doing, Paul? And again, that left hand was out, and he was pointing with his index finger. He said, I heard that bit you just did uh, a little while ago. Did you make that up yourself? I said, well, no, I kind of took that from somebody else a little bit and moved it around so it sounded like me. Oh, he said, you stole it. I said, yeah, I stole it. He said, no. He said, if you do something once, that's stealing. Do it more than once, that's research. (laughs) (laughs) So he was a a great man, great man to work for. Follow the people. Get together, spend some time with us. Follow the it's not very far, get in your car and you'll find that everybody goes to Geno's, cause Geno's is the family.
Everybody goes to Gino's because Gino's is the place to go. That was Gino Marchetti and Alan Namichi. Amici was a fullback and Marchetti was a defensive end, both in the Hall of Fame. Uh, Alan Namichi scored the touchdown that beat the New York football giants in that playoff game that went into overtime before there was overtime. Alan Amici dives through a huge hole and the game is over. The Baltimore Colts win a historic overtime victory, beating the Eastern Conference champion New York Giants 23-17 in a truly magnificent come-from-behind effort. Let's watch again greatest the football play. game ever played, the NFL the championship, yay Colts. Uh, they started this, this chain of restaurants in, in Baltimore. Casinos is the place to go. And uh, it was a hamburger joint. It was pre-McDonald's, if you know what I'm saying. Of, kind of like McDonald's. Dick Purton came in to do mornings on WBAL from Detroit. He was on the air there for about three months. And one morning he did some kind of a deal about, he played a Geno's commercial and came out of it by saying, yeah, but everybody's going to McDonald's and WBAL fired him. And he went back to Detroit. <laughs> you guys definitely had the good times, you and Kirby. And what happened inside the hallways of the radio station, you were able to bring onto the microphones as well practical jokes some of us in radio have been on either sides of those getting played on or playing them um and wkrp as you, know, you and rich were talking about uh emulated some of the things that happened with you guys it, it, even as far as taking the name of arthur carlson who ran susquehanna you made him run uh wkrp on television well krp also stole uh, a thing that happened with you talk about the fire in the news. Oh, well, when I first got to WCAO, I was doing news from four to four to ten, four to ten and ten to midnight records. So and it was rip and read news. I mean, you know, it was they, they wanted you to read 90 seconds of headlines. And Johnny Dark was doing six to ten. Uh, the late Johnny Dark. He, he had a marvelous career. He was on the air in Baltimore for, I don't know, 40 years, I guess. Uh, but a real wise guy. I mean, a wisecracker funny guy. So I'm over there. I just, I rip a piece of the, you know what the newswire looked like. It'd have this long piece of paper and you'd have the headlines at the top and there would be this four or five feet of trailing news. <laughs> like a CVS receipt today. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> In the top of the CVS receipt, get up with a cigarette lighter and he comes over and lights the paper at the bottom. Now that newsprint burns like wildfire. <laughs> so I'm trying to get this newscast over, not get my hands burned and end the newscast properly. And he's sitting in the chair by now laughing like hell. I managed I managed to avoid getting singed. But that's, that's the kind of, you know, it, it was just, why would you do that? Because I could. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, reading the news uh, took a more serious turn later on in that year in 1963. Uh, Rich mentioned, you know, we want to occasionally talk about the major events that you were part of during your career and part of because your listeners you know, remember it that way. You know, Paul Rogers said this on the air and uh, the date that I'm going to give you is November 23rd, 1963. I was still doing nights. I didn't start doing mornings until December of that year, just a week or two later. I was sitting in my house at about 1230, uh, getting ready to uh, have lunch and go, go to the station. And I was watching CBS and Walter Cronkite came on TV and told us that John F. Kennedy had been shot. Here is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. I, I didn't know what the hell to do. 
I knew that because yeah, we lived at Barbie and I lived out in the country. We had a little three bedroom rancher on a sled out in Baltimore County with our little babies. My son, Paul, was at that time, uh, too. Uh, Peter was on the way. I, I got dressed quickly and went to the station. And to, to WCAO's credit, they stopped down all the music. They stopped down all the commercials. They went, went to the national news network. And I don't remember which one it was. Broke for local news. Had several people answering the phones because local people were calling, wondering what the hell was going on and how was this going to affect us in Baltimore. People took that uh, personally, took it to heart. It was unbelievable, you guys. It was just the, the atmosphere was, I have never experienced anything in my life that was so morose as that atmosphere. People were walking around with their head in their hands and their lower lip on the ground. I'm among them. We didn't know what to do. That, that, that just, it caught, it took the country completely, obviously, by surprise. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. But uh, WCAO went sideways with the programming for three or four days, and we didn't go back until the weekend. Yeah, that that was an amazing thing. And all the networks, all the radio stations were doing the same thing. And it was there at WCAO where you and Kirby Confer again became reunited. You were there, and he was looking to to get there. Tell us about how you guys got together again. By now, I'm doing morning. And one morning, and Larry Monroe used to come into the station every morning. Morning, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Larry. He came in and said, uh, Paul, I, I, I have something I want to tell you confidentially. Uh, I want to make a change. Uh, I don't like the work that the guy's doing at night. I need to hire a guy to come and do nights. Do you know anybody? Well, Kirby had just accepted the job as the program director at Wolf in Syracuse. Something he'd always wanted to be was a PD. That had only happened maybe a few weeks before this this uh, month, a few months before the meeting with uh, Larry Monroe. So I said, I don't know anybody. I just don't. And this is how God works. God is a clever guy. I get home and uh, late in the afternoon, Barbie and I are in the kitchen getting ready to have dinner and the phone rings and it's Kirby. This is like March of 1964. I said, what's up? He said, oh, Paul, this is terrible. They told me they were going to do all this stuff for me. They're not doing any of it. I got to get out of here. I said, well, you're not going to believe this. But this morning, our program director came in and said they're looking for somebody to do nights. This wasn't this wasn't in March. This was in February, probably. Kirby said, I'll be there in the morning. (laughs) <laughs> now, this is Syracuse, and we didn't have interstates in those days. And a black Ford Thunderbird. He said, I'll be there in the morning. So the next morning, I'm on the air, and it's about quarter nine. And Larry, who always pushed the door open and stuck his head in the door, stuck his head in the door, and he said, hey, Paul, how are you today? I said, I'm doing fine, Larry. He said, look what I got. And he pushed Kirby in the door. <laughs> he hired Kirby on the spot. Right there. Uh, Kerb was doing nights. He was doing seven to midnight and I was doing mornings. And so we're back together and able to see each other. We were back to back on Saturdays because uh, I worked uh, 10 to 2 Saturday and he did 2 to 6 on Saturdays. But we, you know, we saw each other a lot. And we uh, we started doing record hops together. He, he would promote them and I would go run them. So we partnered up on that and did a lot of, did a lot of that. It was great having him. And we started talking again, We, as we always had. Someday we're going to own a radio station together. 
That was always the theme. Remember what I said about goals? Yes. Well, there you go. That was the goal. There were some things that came along with Kirby. I mean, obviously, the records that you were playing at the record hops, Kirby got his hands onto somehow. And uh, some of the programming that uh, evolved out of Kirby being there at WCAO included things called the Liverpool Hour and uh, trading records with Radio Caroline. Kirby gave us his side of the story on it. What, what do you recall? Well, I recall, I don't know whose idea that was. It wasn't my idea, but uh, and I hope it was Kirby's because he's wildly clever and extremely smart and, and really tuned. So he starts doing this Liverpool hour. Now, Kirby uh, had a buzz cut, a buzz haircut. And so next thing you know, we're going to host the Dave Clark Five. And so I say to him, you know what? You should grow your hair long. He said, I'm not going to do it. He said, I'm not going to do it. I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to make you do it. I said, suppose I can get a whole bunch of petitions, thousands of signatures on a petition. And would you do it? He said, I dare you. So I started on the, in my morning show saying, hey, Kirby Confer's uh, doing this Liverpool hour, but he's not growing his hair long. He's a phony. You want him to grow his hair long? Starts, I started getting envelopes with these kids and signed, I mean, just thousands of signatures. He decided that he was going to let his hair grow long. Now, grow long would have been like beetle length, early beetles, okay? So I said, and if you do it, I'll shave my head. But now we're the host of the Dave Clark Five. Kirby walks out on the stage with his hair and the girls went crazy. And, and, and I'm going to tell you right now, I made that some bitch a star and he never thanked me. <laughs> so I told him, he, he said, well, you, you didn't shave your head. I said, no. I, and there's something else I'd like to do. What is that? He said, I said, I've always wanted to take a pie in front of a crowd. Now, here's how smart I was. Instead of getting a shaving cream can and a crust, I go to a damn bakery and I get a chocolate pie, an honest to God chocolate pie. Thing probably weighed two pounds. We walk out on the stage and he starts ragging me. This is all this is all a setup. He starts ragging me about not shaving my head. And as it, he said, I'm not going to do it. And I said, oh, yeah, take this. And he hits me with this chocolate pie. <laughs> the problem was that the curtains were closed. We were out in front of the curtains, these giant red curtains. God knows what they cost. Well, we got chocolate pie stuff all over the curtains at the center. <laughs> which pissed off the civic center people. And I think maybe WCAO had to pay for the cleaning. So then Kirby took this Liverpool hour thing and just, just made it fabulous. He played records before they were available for sale in the U.S. And they were, of course, going to be big hits. The promotion guys hated that because people wanted to buy the record, but they couldn't. So that initial impulse buy moment was lost and they uh, they didn't like that very much oh, he, he did a great job curry did a brilliant job this is an air check rewind season two debbie calton i ended up staying in philadelphia for 36 years which is amazing to me because philadelphia can be tough you know on newcomers you know the fact that i was embraced over the years by tried and true died in the wolf philadelphians philadelphians <laughs> <laughs> you know really meant so and still means so much to me air check a podcast about radio's personality from Radio Personalities. Seasons one and two available now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also listen on your smart speaker. Just say, Alexa, play AirCheck Podcast or OK Google, play AirCheck Podcast. Kirby told us the side of the story about the Beatles' first appearance in Baltimore in September of 64. Uh, what's your side of that story? Because I, I don't think you were uh, privileged to be around or you were out of town. Or- 
I was supposed to be there, but at some point, let's see, I was at, I think the Beatle concert was in September of that year. In the middle of July, Ford Motor Company was debuting the LTD uh, Ford sedan. And so their deal was they were getting morning guys from all over the country to do live commercials for the LTD. And your talent fee was you got a free LTD for a year, a new car for a year. And you had to go to Detroit and for a weekend, the serendipity singers were the big stars of that presentation at a, at a, uh, a lovely uh, hotel little place up there in Detroit. And I go up with uh, Perry Andrews and uh, Joe Knight and Lee Case. Those, that Perry Andrews was on BAL, Joe Knight on WFBR, and Lee Case was on WCBM. And I'm 14 years old, and I'm in there with these 35 and 40-year-old guys that have been on the air forever. So anyway, we go to Detroit, and we drive the LTD. Now, I had a choice. That happened to be the weekend the Beatles were in Baltimore. I had a choice. I could either go, go on the stage, which no one would remember that I was there, or give a damn, or I could get a free car for a year. I chose the car. <laughs> know what if it was today i would do the very same thing <laughs> no I, I just honestly um i don't know what this is going to sound like but i have to be truthful the celebrity thing has never been top drawer in my mind uh, i'm not uh, impressed with celebrity i might walk across a restaurant to shake hands with johnny unitas <laughs> but i say that lovingly because he was a great quarterback and I was a Colt fan, but getting in people's face and all that stuff, just no, that's just not me. And I didn't, I didn't mind it once in a while, but it wasn't anything I was seeking. And so it didn't matter. And doing a show every day, I don't know that I ever assigned much importance to what I was doing on the air because there was going to be more of it tomorrow. Now, my, my picture, the emperor picture is on that handout that they gave. The WCAO gave. You might have seen that thing. And it's okay. I, I'm perfectly content. I love the car. We had one car. Now we had two. Barbie, Barbie could have a car. She needed it to do some things. We lived out in the country. Well, Kirby's hey. Liverpool Hour opened the door for many unexpected opportunities. And uh, here's a few more of those events that Paul and I are, are going to touch on. And, uh, you know, you mentioned uh, not being around when the Beatles were in Baltimore, but you were a part of uh, an event that included the Yardbirds. Talk a little bit about that. They were scheduled to play an event in Montreal. And this was when the uh, big, there was a big art controversy going in Canada about whether Montreal ought to be French speaking or not. And so the French people were all bent out of shape and the English speaking people were all bent out of shape. And the next thing there's threatening riots or something. So they canceled the gig. The next gig that Yardbirds had was going to supposed to be in Washington, D.C. because they have to drive now from Montreal to Washington, D.C. Got to come right through Baltimore. And one of the record promotion guys, I don't know, somebody was pretty smart, called Kirby and said, you could have the Yardbirds for one of if you got something where they could play. You don't have to pay them. And it's not a full concert, just have the Yardbirds. Well, we Kirby and I were doing this record hop at Utahwood Gardens in uh, in Towson, which was an, an abandoned corner store in a strip mall, drugstore. We said, bring the Yardbirds. So we had a local band, one of the best bands in Baltimore at the time, the Admirals. They were the they were our house band that night. Didn't play any records. The Admirals played music, and then here came the Yardbirds. Well, the stage was about four feet high, or four and a half, <laughs> and the kids were in a half moon right around that stage. We put a thousand kids and this building was fire scaled for about 350 at three bucks a head. Uh, it was fabulous. The ki kids were well behaved. The Yardbirds played. I didn't have any idea what that music was all about because I was I was a soul music guy. They were good. I didn't even know the personnel at that time. I don't know because I know lead several great lead guitar guys went through that group, including Eric Clapton, by the way, is a fabulous musician. I didn't pay any attention to that. Kirby was on the air. He promoted it. 
and I ran the record hop. The next day, because we got paid in cash, the, the, the next day, Kirby and I and the, and the guy that owned the, the leased the building divided the money. And I had $1,000 for Kirby. We each got $1,000 out of that. More money I ever seen in cash in my life. So it was wrapped in those little paper bands and I had it in a paper sack. I went into the radio station. Kirby was on the air. So he was doing 10 to 2. I was doing 2 to 6. I was doing news for him on Saturdays. And I went in and sat in the news chair behind him. And when he turned to play a record, I started taking these rolls of bills out 50 at a time. How much money is here? I said, it's over $1,000. Oh my God. (laughs) We never had a score like that before. It was all fun. And the kids were well-behaved. We never had any problems whatsoever. Paul, you talked about the promotion to get Kirby to shave his head and the morning guy lighting your rip and read copy on fire as you read the news. But this one particular act took place without your knowledge. And it's the story of a guy named Joe Kelly at a competing radio station in Baltimore, a new formatted station called Hot AC at the time, very uh, avant-garde, if you will. And the call letters were WCBM. What did this guy do behind your back while you're working for the competitor across the street? Uh, WCBM was a Metro Media station, of course, affiliated with the Metro Media chain of stations in New York and Los Angeles and San Francisco. I mean, John Kluge had pulled together a magnificent company and WCBM was MOR, we called it in those days, middle of the road. It was Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet, followed by Frank Sinatra, followed by Dean Martin, and then Steve Lawrence and Edie Gourmet. They had decent ratings and upper upper level adults and uh, age, age group, upper demo adults. They brought Joe Kelly in, a program director from out in the West Coast, to uh, change the format. And he changed it to Hot AC, which was all of the non-rock stuff that was hits, and then 50s and 60s oldies, aimed at 25 to 44-year-old adults. And the station was really, really well done. We were at a, they had a, uh, a nightclub called the Club Venus in Baltimore. And there were a bunch of uh, disc jockeys, guests of the record promotion guys. I think it was Capitol Records. And I think it was the Letterman. I'm not sure. But I was sitting at a table with Joe Kelly, who was the program director at WCBM. And he said to me, when are you going to go to work for a good radio station? I said, well, when are you going to offer me a job? Uh, at that time, Dan Donovan had come in to do Afternoon Drive. Now, Dan Donovan was real name Blaine Harvey, was a kid from Biglerville, Pennsylvania, which is right up the road from York. And he was a summer intern when I was doing Afternoon Drive at WSBA. He was a student at Penn State. And I kind of broke him in on the board at WSBA and we became friends. So now he's brought in to do Afternoon Drive opposite me. I'm on WCAO. We got the big numbers and WCBM's going to try to encroach and all that went on. It was not very natural for Dan and I to be on opposing teams because we played sports together and went to football. He was just a great guy. We were dear friends. But it was known that Don, he wasn't going to be there long. He was targeted to go to WFIL and uh, it was just a matter of when. Long story short, about a couple of weeks after that incident at the Club Venus, I get a phone call from KDKA in Pittsburgh offering me a job. And the call began with, we got your tape. And I said, what tape? And the guy said, well, your air check. I didn't say to him, well, I didn't send you an air check, but I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. They'd really like to have me come up. They said, what would it take? I said, it would take three years of a no-cut contract for about $30,000 a year. He said, boy, you must really like Baltimore. (laughs) Matter of fact, I do. And uh, I'm just getting started doing a lot of freelance work outside of my work at the radio stations. And, um, you know, that's if you want me, that's what it is. Well, we could never do that. Okay. Two weeks later, I get a call from Detroit. We got your air check. I said, I didn't send you an air check. Well, I don't know why we'd like you to, same conversation. And I'm thinking, what in the hell is going on here? The last one came from St. Louis. That was a real short conversation. 
I said, where did you get it? Who sent you this? And the guy said, well, I think it was sent by some of one of your competitors. And the light went on. Well, a few months went by. And I get a call from Joe Kelly. He said, I need you to come over to the station. After, after you get off the air, I want to talk to you about coming to work for us. I said, great. So I go over and he offers me a job. He said, here's the drill. I want you to do to do seven to midnight or eight to midnight, depending on when the talk show goes over, until such time as Dan Donovan leaves to go to Philadelphia and you'll be back on afternoon drive. And he offered me, I think it was 300 or 325 a week, which was more, way more than I was earning at WCAO. And plus, I was really tired of Top 40 radio with the uh, yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy and all that, <laughs> which I had to pretend I liked and I didn't. And I said, I'm in. So now they let me, if you can imagine this, WCAO let me work a three-week notice and I'm going across the street. I took that as one of the greatest compliments I've ever received in my life. I mean that still to this day. Most of the time they sent you out the door. So I'm in the middle of a th of working this notice and one of the record promotion guys comes in, Joe Bellello, and he says, Paul, I guess you heard they fired Joe Kelly. <laughs> Huh. What? He said, yeah, he went out to San Francisco to work the strike out there and he got in a pissing contest with whoever was running it because he was doing all nights and he wanted to do something in the daytime and they fired him. Wow. And you got a new program director at WCBM. And I went, oh boy. So I kind of stewed on that for a, maybe a day. And I said, well, I'm going to go over to the to WCBM and I'm going to introduce myself to the general manager, a guy named Don Kelly, who went on to become the manager of WIP in Philadelphia for Metro Media. It was a really, really good GM. And I went in to see him and he said, I told him what was going on. He said, well, look, Dale Andrews is going to be the program director. You'll love Dale. He's out working the strike. Don't worry about it. You got nothing to worry about. We want you to come over. Everything's great. I went back, worked out my notice and showed up at WCBM and the rest is history. The best music, we It was like being in heaven. Working for WCBM was what was by far and away the greatest on-air position I ever, ever had. Metro Media treated their talent extremely well, and they expected a lot, too. And I did four, three years on the air uh, at WCBM. It was like being in heaven. Now, you're also still allowed to have some fun there. I'm going to do a name drop here. Uh, a guy by the name of Howard Cosell came into play as uh, a little bit of fun on the air. I had an afternoon news friend named Dave Humphrey, a guy from Savannah, Georgia. Now he's retired and lives in Hilton Head. Terrifically talented guy. Dave went on to work for the state of Maryland in the tourism department. He was also we also had the Colt broadcast WCBM, and Dave was the radio producer for the for the uh, radio network. Dave would come in and do the four. 30 and 530 newscast. And at the end of the newscast, we'd banter for a little while, minute and a half, 30 seconds, whatever, if something was going on. And Dave had this unique ability to walk himself into a corner, at which point I'd hit him with a one-liner, shut his mic off, hit the jingle and go to a record. And I mean, I, I laid him out in lavender like that four or five times a month. We laughed about it. We were, we were friends. Well, they had a Monday night football game. And that was when Cosell was on with uh, Frank Gifford and Dandy Don, Dan DeRue, Don Meredith. And they had a big lunch with all the media guys are there. And Dave is there as the uh, producer for the Colt Network. So that afternoon, he comes out of his newscast and we start bantering. And he said, well, Paul, I got a, I got something that you need to hear. And he hits a button. Now he's got the mic and he's got the cart machine in his in the news office. He hits a cart and it's a it's Coward Cosell. A fella comes to Baltimore. Boy, he wants to hear the top personalities in town. Instead, what does he get? Paul Rogers on WCBM. Who needs it? <laughs>
I promise you, you guys, I fumbled and stopped. It's so wait, so you're um, you're on the air and he's doing news and he drops this in unbeknownst to you live on the air? No idea. And I was stunned. I fumbled and stumbled to try to come back with some kind of a wisecrack. And I made a complete fool out of myself and finally shut up and played a record. Oh, my goodness. I'm whelmed. Listen, you don't want to get in an argument with Howard Cosell. You don't even say anything about it. Except one thing. Get out of town. Charlie Ekman's looking for you, baby. <laughs> now we come out of the 530 News. And I said, well, Dave, I got to hand it to you. You really got me. Dave, I want you to know that uh, here a half an hour later, I still haven't recovered. You haven't recovered from what? Howard Cosell? <laughs> I think that man is... I saw him this afternoon. He's got to be one of the funniest men around. Uh, Howard Cosell can keep a, a, a room popping with laughter. He is really a funny guy. He said, oh, yeah. If you like that one, you're going to love this. Seems altogether clear as long as WCBM has Paul Rogers, they're bound to languish in the ratings race. The man is utterly absent of ability. Well, the pay is a lot better in Havity Grace these days. WCBM! <laughs> I promise you, you guys, it was like somebody put a rolled up pair of socks in my mouth. I couldn't say a word. There were ads also that were legitimate ads that, well, don't run anymore. A 60-second cigarette commercial for Salem. Oh, my God. Salem is the menthol cigarette that refreshes your taste for you. Salem. We had a, a manager, a great lady, Carol Logan, in Harrisburg. She smoked Salem's at a high rate of speed. Thank God she quit. But they were, that was, you know, the sale, the, the menthol thing. I don't have any, I smoked them for a little while back in the days when I was too stupid to quit. But uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have any connection to it other than that. Big selling brand. Well, there you are, Paul. You're, you're living the dream. You're working through your radio career, hitting the milestone of major market radio by the time you're 25. Uh, that other benchmark of ownership that you and Kirby set out to achieve would also come to fruition. Talk about how that happened. There was a very chilly morning in August, one morning in, in uh, August of 1972. And I was standing in front of the mirror shaving at maybe 8.30 in the morning. It was a nice breeze in the window. Very unusual for August in Maryland. And I'm looking in the mirror. My wife had been saying to me, you seem to be tired all the time. And I can tell her, not. And I'm looking in the mirror and I realized what was going on. I saw a picture of a man who wasn't giving anymore. I was going in every day, doing my show. If it was good, that's nice. If it was bad, who knew? Uh, I was trying my best. I wasn't trying to be a jerk, but I was out of gas. I just didn't realize it. it took me about... 40 seconds to a minute standing in front of that mirror, letting this all wash over me. Anyway, I go into the station. I'm on the air about 2.30 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the hotline rings, and it's Kirby out of the blue. This, now, this is God working, fellas. I'm telling you. And Kirby says to me, how you doing? I said, I'm doing fine. He says, where's the guy that always wanted to own a radio station? I said, well, you're talking to him. He said, oh, yeah? And what are you doing about that? Same thing you did yesterday. I said, well, I guess you're right. He said, you need to come down. I need to talk to you. It was almost Labor Day. So we pile the kids in the car and we go down to Kirby's house and we go out on his boat. The station had a boat, W-Y-R-E, the voice of the bay. That was the name of the boat. He gets out on the boat and he says, here's the drill. I want you to come down, do mornings, and then I want you to sell the rest of the day. And I'll give you a 50 percent pay cut, but you only have to work five days a week and we'll teach you how to sell. And then you'll be on the road to learning to become a radio station owner. And I went in the next day and resigned and they let me work out a three month notice. 
Dale Andrews said, you got the highest ratings in the city. I never knew. I never looked at it. Don't know if he was lying or not. He said, but I really need you to stay through the book. I left my last day on the air was December the 2nd, a Saturday in uh, 1972. And the following Monday, I was doing mornings at WYRE. And the promise there was, if you can bill $100,000 selling in your first 12 months, at the end of the year, you'll come off the air and be the sales manager, which I missed 100000 by $238 or some funny number. And the next March, which was 74, was my, my last day on the air. Uh, and I was then became the sales manager. And Kirby and I were then on our way. At least I was on a business on the business side of the business. Kirby's com- comment was, you got to learn where the money comes from or you won't know, have any idea what the hell's going on. He was, of course, right. He was the manager at WYRE at that time. So the next year, 75, uh, the man that owned the station told us it was for sale. We tried to buy it. Thank God we didn't. Having a daytime AM in the umbra- under the umbrella of all those great Baltimore and Washington stations and an AM would have turned out to be a disaster. We tried like hell, but every time we made an offer, somebody topped it. Eventually, we threw in the towel. Sitting in his office one day in uh, probably March or maybe late February, March of 75, he said, what are we going to do now? I said, well, I don't know what you're going to do, but I'm going to find a radio station to manage somewhere. Why don't we buy our first station? Kirby said, how are we going to do that? I said, well, get out your broadcasting magazine and let's go to the, go to those tombstones in the back and find a broker. He said, that's a good idea. He was sitting at his desk. I was sitting in a chair in front of it. I, I can see it. So he gets the phone book and he calls Dick Kazako, who was a broker up in New York State, asked if they had any stations for sale. Told him what we were trying to do and who we were. There were three. One was a 50,000 watt FM in Binghamton called WAAL, which later became a great rock station. One was an AM FM in Charlottesville, Virginia. Lovely city, lovely town. The AM was a class A. I mean, the FM was a class A, 3,000 at 300 feet and heavy competition. And lo and behold, an AM FM in my hometown of Williamsport, Pennsylvania. We wanted to buy whale, but it had no revenue. And here we were, two guys with each with three children. That wasn't going to work. We thought about Charlottesville, but we thought the competition's too rough there and uh, for a couple of greenhorns. So we settled on Williamsport and we ended up buying WILQ and WLYC and moved back home, so to speak. Uh, We put that, by the way, on the list of pluses and minuses we put were from Williamsport on the minus side because we had no idea how we would be received having been away from there for 10 years. It worked out beautifully. We bought the station. The market had 600,625 of radio dollars in the whole market. And that year, combination of their numbers through uh, through July and our numbers from August to December, we did 425 with those two stations. The next year, we did 707. The next year, we did 950. And the fourth year, we did a million 250. And the market became a $2 million market. Why? Because Kirby and I got up there and brought all these ideas. Ideas can be sold where merchandise cannot. That's all described in my book in Wiggles. Uh, That's about how Kirby and I built the business. And so we brought ideas. We were selling jingles and teaching people how to use radio, and it just worked. It was fabulous. And that was basically the beginning of what turned into key market communications. I will say, and I'm I'm going to reference this again, I'm one of the most blessed people you will ever meet in your lives. Uh, I was blessed the moment I was born with being born in America to great parents and brought brought up in a Christian home with principles and morals. I met this beautiful girl when I was 15. I had this magnificent partner who was a bloody genius, and it was fun every step of the way. So all of that came to the fore when we started buying radio stations and getting them noticed. And we took all the things we had learned over all those years and just and did it the same way as if it was top 40. Just do it. What are you going to do? Let's do this. Yeah, okay. 
<laughs> Earlier in this session, we talked about Dion and the Belmonts. I wonder why, being the very first record you ever played as a disc jockey on the radio back in 1959. Let's fast forward 15 years later, your last radio show. What was that last record you played? In the summer of 1958, now remember, I love the rhythm and blues songs. And there was a guy named Chuck Wills who had a big hit, What Am I Living For? Came out with a record called I Don't Want to Hang Up My Rock and Roll Shoes. And I played that record on WMPT probably August, September of 1958. And I said, when the time comes that I'm not going to be on the air anymore, this is the last song I'm ever going to play. So it's 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 March the second of nineteen I think of, I think I have the date right of nineteen seventy four and I'm on the air and uh, maybe March the first I don't remember anyway playing the hit songs of the day none of which were Chuck Will's songs. <laughs> Oh, I just said, well, this is it for me. It's uh, kind of a difficult thing to do, but after 16 years, I'm just going to kind of vanish off the radio and stay in radio. That's going to be a little difficult, but I'm going to be in sales here at WYRE. And uh, 16 years on the air is enough, I think, uh, especially if you've been listening to me for any more than 16 minutes. <laughs> You'll know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to say goodbye, so I'm just going to kind of let this guy do it for me. I don't want to hang up on rock and roll shoes because I get that feeling every time I hear the news. Well, I can't remember what the first record I played as a disc jockey back in 1987. What a great year of music releases. Maybe it was You Can Call Me Out from uh, Paul Simon or Michael Jackson, U2, Bruce, or Whitney Houston. And in terms of the last song when that day comes, uh, probably a Zeppelin song, maybe the Rain song. Or maybe it's uh, Van Halen's version of Happy Trails, which I think would be appropriate, too. But, uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh, yes. Well, Paul, I'd like to take this opportunity to say thank you. Uh, So honored to have you on an Eric Check session today. It was guys like you, you know, from from those days, those early days of Top 40 Radio that really set the standard and really made guys like me listening as a kid to want to be what you did. And uh, thank God I was able to do it and still doing it today. So thank you very much for your story, for your time, uh, and for an opportunity to finally meet you after reading both your books. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for reading the books and thank Thank you for having me and i'm going to tell you something that i never said to anybody but i said it to myself often i'd have done it for free <laughs> paul thank you so much as rich said both the books are incredible and um i don't know i'm feeling like we're ha- we're gonna have to do another episode that uh, gets into the tales untold but again thank you my, my pleasure and they're available on amazon thank you guys appreciate it great meeting you 1960s disc jockeys doesn't get any better than that paul rothfuss of course one of the best also radio salesperson radio station owner and author what an amazing career with so many wonderful stories all documented and more in each of his two books alias emperor rogers and wiggles winks and wizards both books available through amazon air check season three has more to come and don't forget every episode of air check is now available including the emperor's childhood bud forever media owner and country radio hall of famer Kirby Confer, WEBN Cincinnati morning host Kid Chris, the creator of the classic rock radio format consultant Fred Jacobs, plus Nina Blackwood, Danny Bonaducci, Debbie Counton, Eddie Trunk. You can stream or download every episode of Air Check on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also tell your smart speaker to play Air Check Podcast. 
If you haven't done so yet, give us a great rating. This is Rich the Sisto. And I'm Paul Kelly. We'll talk to you soon. Closing out another episode of Air Check, a podcast about radio's personality from radio personalities. If you have radio stories to share, we'd love to hear from you. Join the Air Check guest list. Email aircheckme at gmail.com. Musical props are Chris Gordon's. Announcer props, I'll take those. Greg O'Brien, the OB. Air Check is available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also tell your smart speaker to play Air Check Podcast. Air Check is the creation of RDPK Productions.